Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Midland Pre. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here. And I just met my two favorite guides next uh, November. I think I know who I want to sit with in a tree. But uh, thank you for coming today. We're delighted to have you here. Our church is working our way through the book of Nehemiah. And so uh, this morning we are going to introduce to you the next to last sermon in the series. This is chapter 13, the last chapter of the book. And then next week we will be doing a uh, sort of a summary and wrap up, connect the dots type thing. And then, then we'll begin our Advent series right after that. Back in the year around 2000, um, I graduated from the university and then I moved straight into uh, the master's program or seminary at uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. I grew up in a little, well, a little, like 140,000, a little city by the name of Springfield, Missouri. And what was neat, in a sense, about this city is that it was laid out on a very clear grid. You have several large north and south streets, and then you have a bunch of east and west streets. And so really, all you had to do to find your way around is know that I need to be on, you know, Glenstone or National or Kansas Expressway, and I will be going either north or south. If I want to go east or west, I just have to be on Battlefield or Sunshine or Kearney. And if I'm on one of those streets, I can just keep going until I hit whatever it is I'm supposed to be going to, and eventually I'll find it. I won't get lost. I'm either going north, south, east, or west. And then I moved to Dallas. And that was an entirely different story because Dallas is, of course, a huge metroplex. And it started back in you know, the west with this little cowpoke town. And they built and they expanded and they expanded and they expanded. And consequently, what happens is the street we lived on was called uh, off of Northwest Highway, which used to be like the outer loop, that, a circle that went around the city. Well, now there's like 635 Lyndon B. Johnson, and then beyond that, there's a big tollway, and it just goes out, 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 out. And I was totally confused and completely lost. Because what happens is when you get on one of these loops, all of a sudden you're going, you know, you're going east-west, I'm going east-west, I got it. Oh, wait a minute, now I'm going south. (laughs) What just happened here? I have no idea where I'm at. And this is before the time of uh, smartphones or GPS or anything fancy like that. It's just the old days of actual maps. And those don't work too well when you're going 70, 75 miles an hour in bumper-to-bumper traffic and five-lane highways east and west and all over the place. So I was thoroughly, thoroughly confused. And what I realized then is in order to navigate my way through the city, it was really important that I understood my location. Where am I? Am I going east, west, north, south? How do I get to where I want to go? In order to accomplish that, I have to know where I'm at right now. Well, as in navigation, so too in life. In order to get where you want to go, you have to know where you're at right now. You have to 
be able to locate yourself. So today we're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 13. And it's an interesting text because what happens is in four different places, you'll hear the cupbearer saying, Remember me, oh my God. Remember, remember, remember. And then following that, it'll say something like, for my good works, or remember them for their bad works. And one of the pastors in our team meeting was reading it this week, and they said, man, doesn't that sound a little bit self-serving? I mean, I'm not sure I get that. That sounds different than the message of the New Testament with humility and grace and, you know, basing our identity in Christ. How does this work if Nehemiah is sitting here saying, hey, Lord, remember this. Look at this. Lord, notice this. And what I would say to you this morning is that Nehemiah is not, in fact, being conceited, but instead he's doing the very exact same thing that we ourselves must do. And what he is doing is this. He is locating himself in the eternal covenant-keeping God. The word remember is associated all throughout the Old Testament with the covenant. When you think about the law, Moses is giving it to the people and he's saying, hey, remember this, you know, bind it on your foreheads, write it on your hearts, teach it to your children, pass it on. Remember, 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 remember. And nearly every time you see the covenant, you're going to find this exact same term, remember, going along with it. And as you can imagine, if you forget, there are dire consequences. You lose your way, you get lost, and oftentimes you wreck. But if you want to get to where you're going, you must locate yourself in God. So, Nehemiah chapter 13, that's what's going on there. And and what else is happening, as I said earlier, it's the end of the book. So it's kind of interesting because, uh, as Dan mentioned this morning, you know, chapters 11 and 12, they're pretty triumphant. They're like, Woohoo! We built the wall. All right, everything's going well. You know, the the priests are functioning. The temple is up and running. The people are worshiping. There's revival. This is great. And we would love just to end the book right there, chapter eleven, twelve. Bang! Stop the story. Woohoo! Fairy tale ending. All's well that ends well. But then there's chapter thirteen. What? This wasn't the ending I was hoping for. What's going on here? All the triumph, the return, the celebration. Now Nehemiah comes back and it's a royal mess. He looks around and he sees that even though the wall's been rebuilt, there's major leadership issues. There's trouble in tithing. There's, uh, their worship has come to a halt. There's biblical ignorance. And everything is in complete disarray. It's a total mess. And what would happen then if Nehemiah would say to himself, you know what? (coughs) I can't take it anymore. I, I quit. This is a mess. I did my best. I put my heart and soul into this. But it's in shambles. This is a complete waste of my time. I am done. But instead, what you see is not that, not that sense of frustration because his work seemed to have failed. But instead, he steps out of that and looks at the bigger picture and locates himself 
not in what he is doing, but in who he is in God. He remembers the covenant. So you'll see a slide for the theme, which is basically that we must, we ourselves, like Nehemiah, must locate ourselves in Christ. When we are tempted to identify ourselves with anything else, that identity is too narrow and too one-dimensional to be eternal. Instead, we have to step out of that and locate ourselves in the eternal covenant-keeping God, just like Nehemiah, that is, for us, in Christ. Now, look at the way this chapter moves forward, chapter 13. I think you'll see what I mean as we walk through it. Each section that you see outlined up here, one, two, three, and 4, each of them is followed by the word remember. So the chapter is broken down into these sections, and that's the way I'm going to move our sermon forward today. I see that some of you are taking notes. You should also know that if you're writing things down, you can go online and always download the slides. So if we click through too fast, then you're welcome to uh, just put them on your computer and you'll have it later as well. But here's, here's the outline we're going to follow. And you'll see that there's leadership issues, there's tithing troubles, they have issues in their worship, and biblical ignorance. Now, if I were to tell you what the actual, you know, things that he's struggling with there are, the specifics, you'd go, wow, that's majorly landlocked. I mean, that is so Old Testament. That's really Old Covenant. But as you look at these categories, you see, man, those are central to the church. Is leadership important? Yes. Is tithing important? Yes. Is our worship important? Yes. Is biblical knowledge important? Absolutely. All the way through, these things pertain specifically to us today. So what I'm going to do as we walk through this, instead of reading all 31 verses and just, you know, plowing through it, instead what I'm going to do is take each category by themselves. So I'll read those verses, we'll talk about that situation, and we'll move through through each one. So, beginning with the leadership issues in verse 1. This is Nehemiah chapter 13. says this, on that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but instead hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. Now, as soon as the people heard the law, they separated uh, from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now, before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and, notice this, who was related to Tobiah, Nesbitism, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of the grain, wine, oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Xerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. So basically he'd gone home for a little bit. He came and left. 
After some time, I asked the king and came to Jerusalem, and then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of our God. And I was very angry, and I threw out all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and cleansed the chamber and brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain and the offering and the frankincense. Whew, there you go. Take that home and devote yourselves to God, right? What in the world's going on there? There's a priest, and there's like his in-law buddy, and there's the temple, and all of a sudden, Nehemiah shows up and starts throwing his furniture out. <laughs> You're like, what are you doing? He's freaking out. Well, what's happening here is basically this. Um, Tobiah is not a Jew, and if you, if you, although he has a Jewish name, he's married into the family, but he's not clearly a part of the family of God. And if you do a quick review of Nehemiah, and I'm just going to read these verses off. You can email me later if you want. But if you look at like chapter 2, chapter 4, and chapter 6, you see this consistent history of this guy intentionally opposing the work of God. This guy is not just an alien to the family of God. He is an opponent of the family of God. When he first hears that Nehemiah is coming back, he jeers and despises. He's the guy that says, hey, if a fox climbed up on that wall, it would fall down. He makes fun of Nehemiah. He is angry. He threatens to kill Nehemiah. He comes up with plots. He tries to sway other leaders in the local city to undermine both the efforts and intentions of Nehemiah. He's going at this guy from every single angle all the way through. Now, Nehemiah completes the task, he praises God, and he goes home. And then, (coughs) after being home for a little bit, he comes back, and guess who, of all people, is now occupying the corner office in the temple? Tobiah. Are you kidding me? This guy is the wrong one to have in charge. He's been opposing this thing the whole way through, and now you give him the corner office? What are you doing? He's not even supposed to be in the temple. He's not a Levite, a priest, let alone a Jew. How can you do that? You've completely defied the covenant and agreement of our God and the one that you reaffirmed just two chapters before. After you built the law, you committed that you wouldn't do this, and now you're doing it. What are you doing? So Nehemiah walks in, and verse 13 says, Hey, I was angry. I was mad with righteous and zealous anger, and I threw out the household furniture of Tobiah. He kicked him out. He didn't even say, hey, man, come collect your stuff. It's time to go. He's like, I'm going to help you with that. You don't need a box. Out you go. You're not supposed to be in the temple of our God. Here you go. Nehemiah is a beautiful picture of what is coming later in the New Testament. Can you think of anyone else who cleaned out the temple, turned over the tables and said, hey, this is a house of prayer. It's not a place for commerce. Nehemiah, you've been, or Tobiah, you've been seeking your own benefit this whole time. This is not what this is for. So he throws them out. Then, notice how he deals with the leadership issues You'll actually see in the next section, which I've 
uh, labeled or categorized as tithing troubles, that in fact, he, in verse 13b, appoints men who are considered reliable. So he gets rid of the bad leadership and exchanges it for quality leadership. Do you think that will make a difference? I think so. And what's neat then is you follow that trail through the New Testament and you look at the qualifications for leaders in 1 Timothy 3, 2. And it doesn't in fact say the most popular guy, the most political guy, the best looking, the most wealthy, the most productive, the highest in his career or whatever. Instead, it says those who are reliable, those who are a husband of one wife, faithful men, self-controlled, hospitable, able to teach, gentle, not quarrelsome. Those who conduct themselves with dignity. That's a reliable leader. And that's what you're looking for. This was Nehemiah's pursuit, and he does this. He cleans out the leadership issues. There's a new sheriff in town, and here it goes. Then in verse 10, he says this, going on. He says, (coughs) I also found that the portions of the Levites, that's the priests, had not been given to them. So the Levites and the singers who did the work had each fled to his field. Hey, they're not getting paid. They've got to go somewhere else to earn a living. So I confronted the officials and say, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought, brought the tithe of grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. As the treasures over the storehouses... Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan, son of Zachar, son of Mattiah. For why? They were reliable or men. Their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Now, here the conclusion, verse 14, he says, Remember me, O my God, concerning this. Do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and his service. Now, why, at this point, would Nehemiah want to say, okay, remember me, God, remember me? Well, it's a little bit like this. Uh, this last week, I was, uh, well, it wasn't this last week. I don't even remember exactly when it was. But sometime in the past, I was composing an email. And I get, you know, a good number of emails. And a lot of times they're insignificant. But this one I felt was one I really had to think my way through. Be careful how I craft it. Be intentional about my words. And I'm hoping for a positive response on the recipient that once they get it, they will really get it. And then they will come around and move forward in this way. So I'm really intentional and I send it after long, hard thought and revisions and whatever. And then I get up to take five and I'm thinking, boy, you know, I hope they send it. I hope they get it and they hope they get it. Man, I hope they. And then I started thinking to myself, what are you doing? Like, am I hanging all of my hopes on their response? Is the quality of my day going to be determined by whether they do what I want or not? I mean, where am I placing my hope? If I am resting my hope in their response, then in a sense, I'm totally setting myself up for failure. If they write me back and say what I hope they say, I'm like, woohoo! And if they don't, or maybe they don't even, you know, acknowledge it, I'm like, oh man, oh, how's our relationship now? Oh no, well I've got to blah blah blah, and I've wasted 
my whole day worrying about this thing and checking and rechecking my inbox. I don't need to do that. What do I need to do? I need to establish my identity. I need to locate myself in Christ and not this other relationship. My relationship with him doesn't change. It is secure based on his work and not on mine. So I locate myself in Christ, and I'm not hanging on you know, pins and needles all day waiting for the response. I'm like, I did. The Lord knows. You know my heart. I did my very best with that, and that's all I can do. And so I trust that you're pleased. I'm living in you. I'm located there. Everything else is fine. We'll see how this other thing goes, but I am resting in you. That's a totally different approach than hanging yourself on someone else's response. And so Nehemiah here, he walks into the temple, and he's kicking people out, and he's changing leadership. And I'm thinking to myself, boy, that, that's an interesting job. You're probably not making a lot of friends, you know? How are things going to go? You probably don't want to run for political office at this point because you've made a number of enemies. But you did what the Lord called you to do, and you did it well. And the only reason that Nehemiah can go to sleep at night is not because he's thinking about, boy, I hope they like me. I hope Tobiah's family's not mad at me because, you know, he's related to the priest and they're really popular and all the people respect them and they got a lot of fields around the city and I don't want to upset them because if I do, then this could affect my career and blah, 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 blah. No. He's like, get out. Remember me, oh God. He's completely located himself in his identity, not in other relationships, but instead in his relationship with God. Remember me, O God, the covenant that I am appealing to. It is all based on you and your work and not on me. Now, let me just throw in another little application here. There's an interesting question in this text. It says, why is the house of God forsaken? Well, that's sort of a rhetorical question. Why is it forsaken? Well, you quit bringing in your tithes and offerings. Of course, going to look like a repo before long the shutters are falling off you know the moss is growing over the top the grass has gone crazy and there's rocks through the windows and boards across and no trespassing signs why because nobody's taking care of it nobody cares and this is showing up very clearly and first of all in their pocketbooks and wallets and what that does is it means that the temple stops functioning because all the staff And employees have to go out and earn their living in some other way. So nobody's taking care of the temple. Does this sound like the church? What happens if the economy goes south? People say, "Woo, better cut back on the giving a little bit. We don't know what's going to happen in the future. You cut back on the giving, guess what happens? There's nothing to take care of salaries. So you cut back on the staff. And some of the functions of the ministry are naturally going to be neglected because a fewer number of people can't do the same amount of work. It's pretty simple. That applies to us just as much as it applies to them. And we look at our church now and we know we've got a tight budget and we sit here and say, hey, we want this or we want this or we want that. Guess what? You've got to put your money where your mouth is. If you want something, then one of two things have to happen. Either A, you have to be willing to pay for it or B, you have to do it yourself. That's the way it is in your life, right? If your house is broke, you either got to pay somebody else to fix it or fix it yourself. 
look, if our house is broke or falling apart, we either A, got to pay for someone else to do it, or B, do it ourselves. Now, sometimes a short budget is actually a good thing because it gets people involved. And all of a sudden, the people are using their gifts in ways that they never knew they could before. And it turns out to be a benefit and a blessing. But in the end, the key is that your priorities are right. That you are not neglecting the house of God. Nehemiah says to him, hey, why is the house of God neglected? Well, people stopped giving. So the paid employees went home. They had to find another way to make a living. And stuff stopped. That's what happened. Now, let us also be clear while we talk about that. That is the function of the church. But that is not the essence of the church. What I mean is this. There is function, that which we do. And there is essence, that which Christ did. What Christ did and what he is doing can never be destroyed or stopped. But the work that we do can be redeployed somewhere else. <laughs> you know? Because it's, if we're either going to participate or he's going to take his work and do it somewhere else. But what he did on the cross is permanent and eternal and cannot be stopped. And it's always moving forward. That is the essence, the gospel And what we are doing now is trying to communicate that and express that to others. That is the function of the church. So giving will affect the function, but not the essence. Christ is the essence. The ministries that we do are the functions or outpouring of that. So we need to be careful not to confuse those. Now that, of course, as we said, has a natural spillover effect. Uh, Verse 15 says that, or begins the next category, which is that worship has stopped. Worship has stopped. (coughs) Look at how this plays out. It says this, In those days I saw in Judah people treading the winepress on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought in Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians, who also lived in the city, brought in fish of all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and Jerusalem. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? (laughs) And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city. Now you're bringing even more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Now as soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until Sabbath. And I stationed of my ser- uh, some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. And the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside of Jerusalem. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, just like I did to the other guy, I will lay hands on you. And from that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Now, here's that sentence again. Remember this also in my favor, O God. And spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast 
love. What's happening here? You know, is this just some Old Testament ritual uh, lost in culture or something that can affect us today? Let me tell you a little story about uh, the first church I pastored, little country church, and what would happen, of course, it's a long, narrow, A-frame building, and young, new, fresh seminary graduate walks out, 26 years old, first church, here we go, you know, praise the Lord, on the track of ministry. Walk in, and I look out, now let me be clear, I'm not um, disparaging the elderly, I love the elderly, we respect them, they are essential, yes ma'am. They are essential to the health and life and well-being of the church. But what I looked out on, I saw, is basically a lot, and you have beautiful hair, by the way, but I saw a lot of purple hair. (laughs) And I said to myself, oh, this is interesting, a bunch of elderly ladies with purple hair. Okay, how are we going to do this? And then I go over and I visit and I have a nice cup of, you know, cold lemonade and fresh pumpkin pie because, you know, the freezer is full of cookies and everything and we enjoy our time together. And she begins to speak to me and she's like, I just really like to see my grandkids in church. I like to see your grandkids in church. <coughs> and I'm looking at this and thinking about it and, you know, of course, hey, what can we do? We can start a vacation Bible school, we can do this, we can do that, woohoo, let's get all the kids, bring out the dancing bears, right, bring them in, here we go, but then I (coughs) began to pray, step back and think a little bigger about this, and I go back and I ask her, I say, well, you know, um, tell me about, not your grandkids, but your kids, are they in church, and she's like, well, yeah, no, they're busy, they're on the farm, they got this and that, and I'm like, oh, okay, no problem, no problem. I, yeah, all right, I understand, you know, ball teams and farms and everything, and busy <coughs> lives. Okay, well, what about your husband? Did he go to church? I mean, I know he's, you know, he's gone, God rest his soul, you know, but way back, you know, 50, 60 years ago, when you were young, yeah, I see your picture, it's black and white, it's in the same building, did he continue in church? like, well, you know, he, he came sometimes. I'm like, oh, okay, he came sometimes. Did he go to church before you married? Well, some when we were dating, you know. He wanted to meet my mom and impress my dad and show that he's a good fellow. And he really was a good guy. I mean, he is honest and true and hard worker and loyal American, served his country. He is a good guy. He was never mean to me. I believe you. Praise be to God. He's a nice guy. Did he go to church? Well, Occasionally, when it served him, okay. So, Grandpa didn't go to church. Kids definitely didn't go to church. And you want the grandkids to go to church? How is that going to work? This thing died a long time ago. And bringing some 26-year-old pastor into the pulpit's son not going to make a magical fix. This is hard ground, lady, and if you want to get some results, we're going to have to do some real plowing because these hearts have been cold and dead for a long time. Your history has led us to this point. And I would look out in my congregation, and I would see the same thing happen over again. There would be a young lady who would come to church, and she's interested in a guy, and I'm like, okay, so tell me about him. And she's like, well, I'm like, where is he? Well, he's a really good guy, but 
Yeah, where is he? What's up? And yeah, okay, come on. Yeah, yeah, he'll come around. Okay, okay, we work together, we counsel. He pledges his faithfulness to God, to her, to church. They get married. Where is he? Now it's you, basically single mom, even though you're married, trying to get up out of bed and bring your kids to church on Sunday morning. It's a struggle. Before long, you drop the ball. The kids aren't coming. And here we go again. And that's tough. And we look at that and we say that's the reality of a lot of American churches is people have not protected their families. They've not been proactive in their marriages. As a result, the church is in decline. Now, when we read these verses that we just read, and we look at the next ones that are coming up, and we say, what in the world is going on here with the Sabbath worship and God's requirements and all this other stuff? Because it seems really, really weird. Look at verse 23. This is, this is why I tell you this story, okay? It says this. In those days, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod and Ammon and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And get this. I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. All right? And I made him take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sing on a, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like them. He was, yeah, he was a great guy. He was really great at everything and beloved by his God. And God made him king over Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehodiah, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law, ooh, family connection, of Sambalot the Hornite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Now again, that same verse. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Well, what in the world is going on there? We listen to this command, and if you read it from a secular humanist worldview, completely out of context, you may come to this text and say, Aha, see there? God is a racist. There's your patriarchal, whatever, whatever, whatever American society. He forbids intermarriage. Clearly, God's a racist. Is that what's going on here? No way. No way. Look at Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Very beginning. Before people groups even exist, God calls out Abram and says, Look, here's the deal. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples... Not just one, not just a particular color, nothing like that. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. 
The plan from the very beginning is for the church triumphant to sing together in a chorus of multiculturalism, a unified praise to God. Thus, you follow the themes throughout Scripture and you watch and you have Rahab, the harlot, Ruth, the Moabitess, Jesus, the brown, the Samaritan woman, then Paul saying there is neither Jew nor Greek. And finally, the grandiose vision of Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, where the Apostle John says, I see a great crowd, too great to count, from every tribe and tongue and nation standing before the throne of God. And they were clothed in white robes and held palm branches, and they were shouting with a great roar, Salvation comes from God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. The whole plan from the very beginning all the way through is to be the church triumphant from every tongue, tribe, and nation. There's no racism in God. So what then is he trying to prevent here? Here it is. Basically what happens is the Moabites, you'll see a slide here, are biblically illiterate. Well, what does that mean? What that means is this. Number one, obviously, Biblical knowledge is in and of itself important. But two is this. The Moabites do not speak Hebrew. Okay? So what happens then is you get the dual languages married and all of a sudden there's one language that becomes the language of the home and the language of revelation of Scripture of the covenant of God's message to them is forgotten. And no longer do the people understand or know the law. And consequently, you know, dad and mom, Moabite Jew or Jew Moabite or whatever, come into this relationship and they're unequally yoked. And they're not talking Hebrew anymore. They're talking whatever. And the children are raised in an environment where they no longer understand Hebrew. They go to the Sabbath or the Sabbath service, every so often they hear the priest open up the scroll and read, and they're like, I got no idea what he's talking about. Why am I even coming? Dad's like, you know, uh, this is not really my thing. I've been doing it for you because I, I love you, and you're a good lady, and I don't really get a lot out of it either. So why, are we co- why don't you just go, and I'll take the kids, and we'll go off and have a nice day in the park. We'll get quality family time together, you know, whatever. You go do your religious thing. It's great for you, but we got ball games. Have, have at it, Mom. So mom goes to church, dad and kids go away. And what happens? The kids in church? No. Dad in church? No. The grandkids in church? Not a chance. And their entire religious heritage, everything about them is completely forgotten. And the faith is gone. And the Lord says, this can't happen. Families are the cornerstone. We can't let them be neglected. We need both of you fully on board in order for this thing to be handed down. Don't marry these women. Don't introduce something else like that into your faith. Now, <laughs> what happens then, I mean, it, it, as I say, it, it trickles down. It impacts them strongly. And you watch as basically their idolatry becomes infectious. And everyone goes over to the other side. And the Lord says, guys, you just can't do this. 
And we look at this rule and we may say, hey, this is some arbitrary whatever. Let me give you an example. In our family, in our home, uh, my kids aren't here. I haven't asked them permission yet. I'll try to do that next service. They're throwing snowballs the other day. Woohoo, snow. I'm like, yeah, it's good to throw snowballs, okay? But let's not throw them at each other's face. I know, I know, Gafke, that's the most fun way to do it. I get that, right? But look, you never know what's going to happen. Little kid's going to pick up a rock, and then all of a sudden the neighbor boy's going to get hit, and there's stitches, and, you know, it's just going to go bad. Well, one of them's like, well, he was throwing, this happened. He's like, he's throwing a snowball at me, and I duck, and it hit our neighbor's window. I'm like, ha, ah, stop. And so <coughs> I'm kind of like, guys, look, we've got to think. You know, I know this is hard for kids, right? We've got to think about this. If you, if there's a house, right? And then there's your brother. Okay, nail your brother, but make sure you hit him. <laughs> don't miss, because if you do, you're going to hit the house. And please don't throw it at his face, you know? If you give him a bruised rib or whatever, we can live with that. But I don't want any stitches, and I definitely don't want to pay for broken windows. You know, we don't want that. What am I doing as a dad? Well, trying to prevent the stuff that I did, right? (laughs) Or I'm seeing what happens two and three steps down the road. The thing itself is really not so bad, but I can, because I have experience, because I have knowledge, I can see the consequences a few steps down the line. So I make a rule here that some people are like, can't throw snowballs at the face what that's the funnest part i'm like i know and it's not necessarily bad if everybody's having a good time and if you hit the house once no big deal but you never know right so i'm trying to prevent something that's going to hurt you or hurt somebody else so i'm putting up a fence right here for us please don't throw it at their face and please don't throw it at the house that's a rule i'm making just to help you that's what the lord is doing with this intermarriage thing he's like you know what I can see what's going to happen two or three steps down. I know what's coming. And yeah, she's pretty. I mean, she's got dark skin and brown eyes, and that's totally different than everything around you. And I know you're going crazy, man, but stop. Not just for you, but for your kids and your grandkids and everyone down the line. We want this faith thing to continue. And I can see the sequential steps. And you marry her and you stop speaking Hebrew and you stop going to church on the Sabbath and you stop listening to the law and your kids are out, your grandkids are out, and there's nothing left. Don't. Stop. You've got to marry a person who's inside the covenant. This is Old Testament. This is New Testament as well. This is what the Lord is doing. So is God racist? No. No, he's just loving his people and trying to lead them to him. Look throughout the Old Testament. You'll see all kinds of people from outside the Jewish nation being used to bring others to Christ. This is normal. But in order to keep the thing pure, it's got to work like this. So too in the church. God wants to keep it pure. So Sabbath, worship is ignored. Why? Because, you know, look at the families, the biblical ignorance, the language, all of this infectious idolatry has got into them. And again... It's Nehemiah's job to clean things up. Verse 30, he says, Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign. I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided for wood at the offering at the appointed time and the first fruits. 
Remember me, oh my God, for good. Lord, I've done my very best. Tried to remain pure. We've stuck to the covenant. We've cleaned out the bad stuff. Lord, I'm resting not on my own works, but I'm establishing my identity in you. That's where I can rest. You know what, Nehemiah? He's exactly right. He's exactly right. So many of us struggle with peace in life because we hang our identities on something that is inevitably going to drop us to the ground. Oh, I hope my kids are good. Well, they're going to be bad at some point. Well, I hope my car runs well. It's going to break. Well, I hope my house does all right. Eventually, you're going to need a new roof. Bats are going to get in the attic and water's going to come in the basement. It's not going to be great. You know, stuff's going to happen. And if you hang your hopes on all that, you're inevitably going to be disappointed. What you have to do is step outside and say, where is my identity? It's not the fact that I'm this or I'm that or I have this or I have that. It's not in relationships. It's not in possessions. It's not in abilities. But it's instead in Christ. The one thing that transcends and trumps all your other identities is who you are in Christ. You locate yourself in that, and you're never disappointed. Oh, man, I hope Jesus loves me. Yeah, I hope Jesus will never leave me. My husband did, but I hope he won't. He's there. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And through his abiding presence now, you can experience all the goodness of God. You don't have to wait. It's not heaven when I die. It is right now. I am in Christ. And as Christ is in the Father, so too am I in Him. And as the Father loves the Son, because I am in the Son, so too does the Father love me. And it's inseparable. You can't tear apart the Trinity, nor can you tear me from Christ. I am in Him. Amen? I am in Christ. That's where I'm secure. Not in my color, not in the fact that I'm a sportsman, not in the fact that I'm a chemist or an engineer or a husband or father or mom or anything else. I am in Christ. That's who I am. That identity transcends and trumps any and all others. And it cannot change. It cannot be diminished. It's secure. It is in Christ we find our rest. Isaiah says, you will keep in peace, in perfect peace, him whose mind is stayed on you. That's the thing. You can't claim the peace that passes all understanding if you're trusting in your truck. Yeah, it's a really cool truck, but it's going to break eventually. You have to be basing it in Christ and nothing else. That's where you find peace because that is the eternal identity that's incomparable to any other and never changes. When I first wrote this sermon, <laughs> there's all these you know, thoughts that come to mind and want to keep people involved and think of cool titles that will apply to their life. And so one of the titles that jumped out is what to do when things go wrong. You know, oh man, my truck broke. Don't place your faith in the truck, place it in Christ. 
But you know what? If I said that was a sermon title, boy, would I be wrong. Because it's not that Jesus is the backup plan. He is the plan. The first and the last. It's not just, oh man, this other thing didn't work out, so I'll trust in him. He's the parachute. No, he is the plan. First and foremost, before we ever get anywhere else, I am in Christ. Ahead of everything else. He is the eternal, covenant-keeping God who never lets me down. I am in Christ. If we could grasp onto this, brothers and sisters, I think it would make a tremendous difference in our lives. Far less disappointment. No more depression. No more struggles with identity or discouragement or disappointment. Because Christ doesn't give you that. He gives you consistency. He gives you comfort. He gives you peace. He gives you mercy. He gives you joy. He gives you guidance. He gives you strength. He gives you power. He gives you help and temptation and everything you need. If you are in Christ, you're okay. Everything's okay. Locate yourself in Christ. You want to get to where you're going? You've got to know where you're at right now. Where are you? Are you placing your identity in something else? Are you placing it in Christ? Remember, remember, our identity is in Christ. Father, you're a good and gracious God. <coughs> Everything you do is right and true. Of course, the best thing we see is that you gave us your son. Gift unlike any other. The fact that you unite us to him and you through him is absolutely amazing. God, I confess my sin and my guilt anytime. I identify myself with anything else. Maybe think that this other thing or person or ability or pleasure or relationship or whatever might give me peace. You are the only thing that keeps my mind at peace. Lord God, help my heart to rest in you. In Jesus' name, amen.